This episode of First Line is sponsored by TrueLearn, an exam prep company best known for their smart banks that turn your weak areas into your strengths. I am so excited to partner with TrueLearn because it is the only company I trusted for Comlex Level 1 prep last year and Level 2 prep this year. For my listeners who are taking the USMLE, TrueLearn also has an amazing USMLE smart bank. Each TrueLearn smart bank practice question has detailed answer explanations and succinct bottom lines to get the big learning takeaway. TrueLearn includes first aid references for each question and an option to create tests based off of topics, so you can use TrueLearn to help prepare for your school's test during the year. Lastly, if you are in your third year like me, TrueLearn also offers smart banks for shelf exams. Go to TrueLearn.com and use one of my special discount codes for up to $35 off your new subscription. Special discount codes can be found in the episode description. TrueLearn is the first line solution to excelling on your your exam. Hi, my name is Aubrey Ann Jackson and you're listening to First Line. I'm a student doctor in my third year of medical school and I'm here to bridge the gap between sophisticated doctor talk and oversimplified patient education to bring listeners of all backgrounds together to discuss whole body health and wellness. Through an osteopathic lens, First Line covers tangible ways to improve your health, hot topics in healthcare, the journey to becoming a physician, mental health, relationships, and even philosophy, all while holistically addressing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. First Line is now available on a variety of platforms, including Spotify and Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Stitcher, Amazon and Audible, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Castro, Player FM, Podbean, TuneIn, Reason, and iHeartRadio. Please subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're talking about cluster C, which includes dependent personality disorder, avoidant personality disorder, and obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Cluster C is known as the anxious and fearful cluster. They are the least severe of the personality disorders along with histrionic personality disorder because they have the most potential for functionality to persist in at least some realms of life, whether that's in the professional work setting or at the home life or interpersonal relationships. Cluster C is more likely to seek treatment than the other two clusters, so therefore they have a better prognosis or better chance of increasing function with treatment. They're often more aware of their own deficits in this cluster. They also often have co-occurring diagnoses in the mental health space so that they often seek treatment for things like anxiety and depression and therefore health professionals are able to screen for these personality disorders and then treat those concurrently with whatever diagnosis they have. So starting with the first one, avoidant personality disorder. These people are are exactly how you would expect them to be. They avoid. They're very fearful. They're fearful of other people and especially other people's criticism of them. They are considered the second highest functioning of the personality disorders, number one being obsessive compulsive personality disorder. 
They make up about 2% of the general population and they're equal in both males and females. It often starts out in childhood as shyness, isolation, and fear of strangers in new situations. Shyness can be present in a lot of children, but the difference here is that usually when children are shy in childhood, they eventually by adolescence and adulthood, they kind of grow out of it. However, people with avoidant personality disorder, their shyness worsens into adolescence and adulthood. So not everyone that is a shy child will have avoidant personality disorder. These people often have feelings of inadequacy. They find it difficult to talk about themselves to other people. They appear very shy, timid, quiet, lonely, and isolated. They often have low self-esteem. They're uncomfortable in both social situations and intimacy. And here's the important part. They want to have relationships. They're not like schizoid personality disorder with being completely fine on their own. People with avoidant personality disorder, they anticipate that they will be ridiculed, rejected, or humiliated due to their social interaction. So they avoid situations entirely unless there is a guarantee that they're going to be liked by other people. Therefore, they are risk averse. They want something to be a sure thing. They often have feelings of shame and inferiority. They might appear anxious, awkward, and timid to other people. Avoidant personality disorder often co-occurs with other mental health disorders like depression, bipolar disorder, anxiety disorders, especially social anxiety disorder. They may self-medicate with alcohol and benzos in order to cope with their anxiety. Luckily, avoidant personality disorder can be treated quite effectively with psychotherapy, social skills training, and also treatment of anxiety or depression if they co-occur. They have this pervasive pattern of hypersensitivity to criticism, social inhibition, a feeling of inadequacy, and then they have four or more of the following seven symptoms. One is avoiding occupational activities that involve interpersonal contact because of fear of criticism or disapproval. So this is unwilling to get involved with people unless they're certain of being liked. So you will still see these people have interpersonal relationships. Their sense of being criticized is just so powerful that it often limits them. But they are willing to engage if they're certain of being liked. So they often have very strong connections with very close friends and family members that would never leave their side. And they have to consistently remind people with avoidant personality disorder that they do appreciate them because if the person with avoidant personality disorder has any doubt, they are going to see that relationship as anxiety provoking. And that's a clear distinction to make that these people long for connection, but they need to be liked. Number three, they show restraint with intimate relationships because of fear of shame or being ridiculed. Very much struggle opening themselves to other people, talking about themselves, talking about how they feel. It's a real struggle. Number four, preoccupation with being criticized or rejected in social situations. Number five, 
they feel inadequate and therefore inhibited in new interpersonal situations. So they really struggle with meeting new people. Number six, they view themselves as socially inept, personally unappealing and inferior. And they don't think they have very much to offer, even if that is completely untrue. Number seven, last one, unusually reluctant to take personal risks or engage in new activities because of threat of embarrassment. And this fear of embarrassment really connects with all the other criteria as well that they just would feel so exposed and embarrassed that it's not worth doing anything. Taking risks, starting new hobbies, meeting new people, it's just overwhelming for them. And I hope talking about this illustrates how pervasive this personality disorder is compared to something like social anxiety disorder. Now we're moving on to the next one, which is dependent personality disorder. People with dependent personality disorder are often seen as clingy. They have this fear of losing others and then being unable to take care of themselves. This is a little bit different than what we would call codependence and you'll see why. In codependence, you're clinging to each other and your identity is around the other person. In this case, people with dependent personality disorder rely on someone else and the other person does not reciprocate that. They're the third highest functioning behind obsessive compulsive and avoidant. They make up about a half percent of the population, so around one in 200 people. It's equal in men and women, but it's definitely more diagnosed in women. Men probably don't come forward with these issues because of the stigma of, of men relying on others. Women, on the other hand, are unfortunately usually more comfortable coming forward with these feelings because it fits the classic role of a woman depending on the man in a relationship. People with dependent personality disorder often come across as very submissive, sometimes childlike behavior. On the whole, they are very much uncomfortable with being on their own. They devalue their own abilities and decision-making, and the decisions themselves give them anxiety. So, they often seek out relationships with someone who can provide guidance. At a young age, this starts out with parents, and then as they grow up, they will usually turn to a significant other who will then take on this role of being the decision maker and these people are very comfortable with this and it's different from what you would normally see in a toxic relationship with any sort of manipulation because people with dependent personality disorder have it serial throughout their lives that they pick people that they think will be comfortable in the role of making decisions for them. Because of this, they quickly initiate a new relationship after one ends. They are often never single, and if they are, it's for a very short period of time. They're not actually bad at making decisions. They're actually usually quite competent. It's just that they lack that ability to be comfortable with that. 
And because of this, they have great difficulty expressing disagreement because they want to remain in that relationship and they don't want to lose it and they kind of go along with everything and so they don't speak up for themselves. They lack self-confidence and they often make excessive self-sacrifices for their relationships and sometimes, unfortunately, they'll put up with abuse, whether that's verbal, physical, or sexual abuse. Luckily, psychotherapy that encourages independence does help and then they're able to function very well and it's also good to treat the commonly co-occurring anxiety that they feel as well. It requires a pervasive and excessive need to be taken care of that leads to submissive and clingy behavior with fear of separation. And then you'll need to have at least five or more of the following eight symptoms. So number one is difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice or reassurance. Number two is needing others to assume responsibility for major areas of their life. This is an issue because whatever person they pick in their life, that person is not perfect and not going to take perfect care of the person. Number three, difficulty expressing disagreement with others because of fear of loss of support or approval. This does not include normal fears that people might feel with any instability in a relationship. Again, are vulnerable to abuse and being taken advantage of. Number four, difficulty initiating projects or doing things on their own. And this is because of a lack of self-confidence in judgment or abilities and not instead any other reason like a lack of motivation or energy. This is a roadblock because they don't think they can do it when they might certainly be able to. Number five, going to excessive lengths to obtain support from others to the point of volunteering to do things that are unpleasant. They will do the dirty work because if that's in in exchange for support, they will definitely choose to do that. Number six, feeling uncomfortable or helpless when alone because of fears of being unable to care for themselves. So this is very much anxiety driven. They don't think they can do it. They feel helpless without someone else. It's no wonder this one is what leads to all of the other symptoms that because of this anxiety, they will go to extreme lengths to achieve that support. Number seven, urgently seeking another relationship as a source of care and support when a close relationship ends. There is a sense of urgency here. They need to find someone to help navigate through their life. They don't think they can do it themselves. And this has complications on its own to look for a partner to fit the role of a parent. Because like I said, this often comes from childhood where a person with dependent personality disorder relies on a parent or parents. And then they're looking to their partner in adulthood to meet that same need that same level of nurturing and support that a parent provides a small child, they're looking for their spouse or their significant other or someone that they're just in a relationship with to meet that parent role. And you can see how that would be a huge issue. It might remind you a little bit of what we colloquially call daddy issues, which I think 
is probably overused, but I think a lot of what is labeled as daddy issues may indicate a pattern of dependent personality disorder in some individuals. And this is different than codependence, again, because codependence is an unhealthy, trained behavior that takes two people, whereas people with dependent personality disorder will have this issue in every relationship they are in. I hope that makes sense now that I've gone over the criteria. Also, you will not see two people with dependent personality disorder together because People with personality disorder need to be with someone who can make decisions and give them a sense of security. A person with dependent personality disorder cannot give that sense of security to another person because they can't do it for themselves. You won't see them together, but what you will see is someone that they can shift the power over to another person. So what you might see is someone with dependent personality disorder to seek relationships not intentionally, but naturally, they will fall in line with a relationship with maybe someone with narcissistic personality disorder or someone else with traits that will happily take control in a relationship. You can see how someone with narcissistic personality disorder would also gravitate to seek that kind of partner as well because they are totally fine with taking control, calling the shots, and also someone that will happily feed their ego. They definitely have complex issues that are a lot of times also overlapping with childhood trauma as well and anxiety. Next up, we are talking about obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Before I go into what it is, we probably know someone like this. So obsessive compulsive personality disorder, these people are emotionally constricted so they don't express as much emotions. They most likely keep it more internal. And for others, they just have a shorter window of emotion. So their angry really isn't that angry. Their sad really isn't that sad. Their behavior largely stems from this fear of losing control. This is the highest functioning of all the personality disorders. It's about 7% of the population. That's about maybe one, one in 14, one in 15 people. Pretty common. And it makes it one of the most common personality disorders, if not the most common. It is twice as common in men as women. This is probably what people mean when they colloquially say OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. But you need to know that obsessive compulsive disorder is actually very different than obsessive compulsive personality disorder, even though they have the obsessive compulsive in their name. So before I go on with OCPD, I'm going to first share a little bit about OCD. So hopefully you can kind of see the difference here. OCD is an anxiety disorder by the DSM. It is not a personality disorder. It is not a personality trait. It involves obsessions, which are recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or images in their mind that are intrusive and unwanted. They just appear, they're just thoughts that come into their mind and there's nothing they can do about it. They also have compulsions, which are repetitive behaviors or mental acts. And this can include things like hand washing stereotypically or checking the stove to make sure it's off, a certain number of times even, 
ordering objects a certain way, and that's also very stereotypical. These compulsions are things that they are driven to perform in response to an obsession. So for an example, you could have this recurrent thought that you're going to have an infection that will kill you or kill people that you love. And so then you have the compulsion to always wash your hands or always wash the floors and you have to do maybe a certain number of repetitions of it. To be diagnosed with OCD, it has to take up at least one hour of their day, these compulsions. So if it's hand washing, you would need to hand wash for at least an hour a day. That takes away from other activities that you have during the day. These compulsions are due to either the obsessions or just according to these rigid internal rules. Something to focus on is obsessions are thoughts that are intrusive and they just come in. Obsessive compulsive personality disorder, they don't have those. These are more things that are just built into their personality that they see the world a little bit differently. Everything about them just wants to have that control, wants to be detail-oriented and orderly and perfectionist. Obsessive compulsive personality disorder, again, preoccupation with orderliness, perfectionism, and mental and interpersonal control. A lot of times they think they know what's best, and this is at the expense of flexibility, openness, and even efficiency. They are excessively careful and prone to repetition, they had to do a reading for homework and they had a chapter to read. They might read the first paragraph and realize that they did not 100% perfectly understand every word. So they're going to go back and read that paragraph all over again. And even then, after the second try, they might decide that they again need to go back and read that paragraph a third time. And this is a little bit of an exaggeration, but you can kind of understand that it would take them a lot longer to do that homework, to do that full chapter that they need to, if they even get it done. But what, what is interesting is if they were to receive a pop quiz on just that first paragraph, they would be able to ace it. So a lot of times they fly a little bit under the radar, by doing really well in school and they do make very good students but I think a lot of the the conflict arises when they go into the workplace when they are kind of forced to work a little bit more as a team and to speak to authorities and maybe even to oversee a team of their own and then they have a little bit more of trouble with that more interpersonal atmosphere. They pay extraordinary attention to detail and repeatedly check for possible mistakes. They might also, if they are assigned a, an essay to write, they might have to proofread that essay a dozen times over, even if one time would have been sufficient. They just have this internal guidelines that they have to meet that they just think that everything needs to be perfect and they're uncomfortable with imperfection. And because of this, deadlines are often missed. You can imagine if you had to reread your essay that you wrote a dozen times, you might not be able to get it in time for the deadline. No one can work that fast if you have to imagine that it would take you 10 times as long to do all assignments. And when they do take time for leisure activities or vacation, which is not that often, they are very uncomfortable unless they 
have taken along something to work on so they don't feel like they waste any time. It's very important for them to be very productive at all times. Additionally, hobbies or recreational activities that they take on when they take them on are approached often as serious tasks that require careful organization and hard work to master. So they're more interested in the outcome and the ability to say that they mastered something and that they've done something perfectly instead of just doing it for fun. They're a little bit different from a lot of the other personality disorders with really wanting support from others. These people are their own worst enemies. They are very self-critical. They also appear to be pack rats. They might have more of the untidy version, which a lot of times when you think of perfectionism, you would think about having a really neat desk and your room's always clean. Not necessarily because a lot of people with obsessive compulsive personality disorder will feel uncomfortable with throwing things out or getting rid of things. A lot of overlap with typical type A personality characteristics like preoccupation with work, competitiveness, and time urgency. People with obsessive compulsive personality disorder are often excessively devoted to work at the expense of relationships and leisure activity. They often seek control of others and they have difficulty delegating tasks probably because they see things as I can do it better than you can and they see that black and white that if it's going to be done it has to be done perfect. Because of this they can appear stiff and emotionally distant and again some can function very well professionally while others might have great difficulty across different domains of the Obsessive compulsive personality disorder often associated with depression, bipolar disorder, and eating disorders. The reason why they often do not seek care, you can kind of think of why. They think that they are on the right side of things. They are often successful and they often view as other people as being the problem. The only way that we see them approach for help is that someone close to them encourages them. Otherwise, they'll come to attention because of treatment with co-occurring disorders. Going through the criteria, I'll probably do this a little bit faster, more of a summary because I already talked about a lot of this. To be diagnosed, you will need a pervasive pattern of preoccupation with orderliness, and mental and interpersonal control at the expense of flexibility, openness, and efficiency. Then you will need four or more of the following eight. So you'll need at least half of these. Number one, preoccupation with details, rules, lists, order, organization, or schedules to the extent that the major point of the activity is lost. Number two, shows perfectionism that interferes with task completion unable to complete a project because of overly strict standards. Number three, excessively devoted to work and productivity to the exclusion of leisure activities and friendships. Number four, overconscientious and inflexible about matters of morality, ethics, or values not accounted for by cultural or religious identification. So having rigid morality that is based off of what the Bible says is not an example of this criteria. 
because believing what the Bible says is different than this is my own belief and I'm just rigid in what I believe and you cannot convince me otherwise. Number five, unable to discard worn out or worthless objects even when they have no sentimental value. They often see objects as potential that they can be used and it's almost seen as a waste to discard those objects even if anyone else would say that they're worthless or too worn out. Number six, reluctant to delegate tasks or work with others unless they submit to exactly their way of doing things. This idea of do it my way or I will do it for you. They don't want to associate themselves with imperfect work. Number seven, money is viewed as something to be hoarded for future catastrophes. It's just this, this rigid belief that things could go wrong and they want to have that sense of control and often money provides that control. So they're often very stringent with their money. Number eight, rigidity and stubbornness, which goes along with a lot of what was said earlier. They often cannot be convinced and this is why they often do not seek help because they are rigid in their rigidity and they don't like to admit that and that's often because they're already self-critical enough of themselves. Thank you so much for listening. Again, I'm on Instagram at First Line Podcast. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash firstlinepodcast. You can reach out for any questions, comments, suggestions, feedback. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again.